With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is AutoLine After Hours. Unscripted. Uncensored. Unapproved. Are you a podcast kind of person? Then look for AutoLine After Hours wherever you go for your favorite podcast. AutoLine After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone Tires, solutions for your journey. Hey, Gary. Sean, how are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm actually anxious to get this show going because I think there's a ton of good information that's going to come out of it. Let's go. Okay, so we've got to introduce uh, the other people that we brought in today. Flavio Volpe is the head of the Canadian Auto Parts Manufacturing Association. John Volker is uh, EV reporter par excellence, I, I think is one way to describe it. I hope that covers it for you, John. That's great. But, you know, the reason that we, yeah, the the reason that uh, we wanted Flavio and John on is uh, we're going to kick off today's show talking about Project Arrow that uh, the APMA, the Auto Parts Manufacturing Association, helped bring together to create, I'm going to have the shorthand and Flavio, you're going to give us more details to create a 100% Canadian content electric vehicle. And so Flavio, Tell us, how, how did this all start to come together? Thanks, John, and, and, and good to see the gentleman on the phone here today. So we don't have a Canadian automaker. We haven't had one uh, in, a, in 100 years, uh, but we make 2 million cars a year here. and We ship $35 billion worth of parts from 400 auto suppliers' factories. And we spent the last couple of years, actually last four or five years, in the middle of trade negotiations, first with the Japanese and the Americans in the TPP and then in the new NAFTA. And I noticed that at the end of all those negotiations on auto rules, the countries that put their thumb on the scale were the ones with the automakers. And hard to tell the Canadian story by saying, hey, listen, 75% of those cars that you see are made by parts suppliers, and some of those are Canadians. And we said, uh, the prime minister challenged us, say, show us what a zero emissions Canadian future looks like. About three years ago, uh, December 2019, we came together as a group here and we said, we've been doing technology demonstration projects for years. We take Lexuses made in Ontario, we put technology on top of them, and we go in and show that new tech to uh, automakers uh, in the hopes of selling it, those suppliers selling it into their series production. But why don't we make a whole car? And uh, we theorized that we could do everything from bumper to bumper here in Canada because we have not just one, but multiple companies in each of the product classes and each of the subcomponent classes. We said, could we do a new design, uh, made in Canada design, engineered in Canada, supplied by Canadian companies, and build a car that would be the ultimate expression of what Canada's uh, capabilities in this space are? And we named it after uh, a fighter jet program of the 1950s that uh, APMA members, you know, we used to be the Auto Parts and Aircraft Association. APMA members were part of this, this, this fighter jet program that ultimately was canceled, but it flew twice as high and twice as fast as anything that the Americans or the Russians were putting out at the time. And it's at least on this side of the border, uh, part of our, you know, kind of our cultural fabric. 
And, it's uh, stuck in your craw, right? That uh, oh, this man. great fighter jet program was canceled, even though it outperformed everything else. There, <laughs> so that's the Avro Arrow for people Avro who can't Arrow. read that. Yeah. So yeah. you you revived the Project Arrow name from this 1950 jet fighter right. program to put on your electric car program. What we thought was ultimately what that project was was uh, the Canadian government and the Air Force at the time said, "Here's a clean sheet. Uh, here's some some pretty advanced specs." Uh, what can the uh, aviation sector do here in Canada? And um, it was extraordinary. And in that, uh, uh, in that uh, demonstration of Canadian technology, even when it was canceled, the key engineers went to go work on the the Mercury program in NASA or on the Concorde in um, in uh, the UK uh, with the British and the French. And so. Uh, we we almost made it to 100%. I couldn't find display screens made in Canada. You know, ultimately, those come from China. Uh, but what we've been saying to everybody is uh, Lenovo, who's been our supplier there, said, uh, look, if you want to make a volume order, uh, we'll make them there. But everything else on that car we got from uh, one of the 534 suppliers that bid uh, to be part of this project. Flavio, you, you said the Prime Minister, so Prime Minister Trudeau set a challenge. Now, was the challenge predicated on zero emissions or was the challenge predicated on um, revitalizing Canadian automaking? Well, he challenged industry writ large to say, we're going to be a carbon-free economy by 2050 and then show us, demonstrate to us what you can do to be uh, uh, carbon zero by 2025. Now, we're in the transportation sector, we're in the automotive sector, and we thought, well, maybe the filter that we should have is zero emissions, and then uh, using that that zero emissions anchor draw, turn around and say, well, you're not going to make a zero emission vehicle on an 800-volt platform if you're not making connected autonomous a uh, uh, lightweight uh, vehicle that then allows for the full spectrum of automotive suppliers to show uh, their customers and the world what uh, we can do here. So, Flavio, who who ran the whole project? I mean, it, it's one thing to reach out to all these suppliers all sure. over the country, and but somebody's got to be the maestro, right, directing sure. the orchestra. Sure, I'll tell you, we've got some some key people here. So, first of all, it's the APMA, and we went out to market with this, and. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, John, you may have met uh, Colin Dillon, who's our CTO. And I said, Colin, uh, ultimately, this is a car and uh, we need to run a design competition. Uh, we need to get the engineering right. And then we've got to go out and uh, and uh, run uh, run the build. So uh, the the choose the suppliers, do the due diligence, go from there. So Colin led our technical team uh, in arriving at this point here. And uh, we we ran a design competition where we said, you you can do a submission if you're a Canadian if you are a post secondary student at a Canadian college or a university, and we had 24 submissions. We had nine on a long list. We had three on a short list. Ralph Giles from from uh, at the time FCA, but of course now Stellantis, agreed to be the the head juror in our in our uh, our team and picked a great design from because uh, Ralph is Canadian. We'll point yeah. out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we said to Ralph. So Ralph's got that great story of the fact that look he was born in haiti grew up in montreal and uh and then one of his big wins uh you know his early big wins was the chrysler uh the the, the lx program the the 300 the charger and the challenger of which i bought several that are made here uh, just north of uh, toronto and brampton and we thought what a great tie-in and 
Ralph is a great guy. We've known him for a long time. And calling in Ralph for both on the Eyes on Design uh, jury at the Detroit, he said, yes, I'll do it. So we picked um, this this design from uh, this uh, group of four students from uh, Ottawa's Carleton University School of Industrial Design and then worked together with uh, Autodesk to help take that design, uh, that 2D design into 3D and usable engineering. And then uh, we sat around here and said, look, we're taking a moonshot. We probably need to hire some astronauts. We pulled in a, a gentleman who was the, uh, uh, Fraser Dunn, who was the chief engineer of special projects at Aston Martin, just finished a Valkyrie project, said, can you help us? Uh, Dr. Marcello Grassi at uh, McLaren, uh, ex-McLaren said, can you help us on the lightweighting side? And so they helped guide us. And uh, we went back to, so that was at 2020, we went back to CS 2021. We said, we're going to open for bidding here. I was hoping 200 companies would be interested in the 13 component classes we went out for bid on, 534 companies bid. 230 met the filter of commercially ready technology, scalable for the 2025 model year. And we ended up engineering this thing to 2025 model year specs. Because what we also said was, look, this is a technology demonstration project. The 58 suppliers that made uh, ultimately made the, the, the final car uh, built to, built. Uh, I, I have to say our build team at Ontario Tech University in Oshawa, just east of Toronto, uh, you know, GM's base here in uh, Canada, put this thing together uh, for us. It was awesome. But we said, we're going to go to CES and we're going to go around the world at technology demonstration for the suppliers who are on it to get more business from Toyota to Tesla to Ferrari to Mazda. And so no unobtainium. I'm not building a car. What we The guideline was, Imagine that we were going to do a vehicle that was going to go um, for less than $60,000 and at 50,000 units a year. And then within that spectrum, give me what you got. And that's what you see, that's what you saw in Las Vegas last week. Uh-huh. So, Flavio, I was interested that in, you know, you're talking about the design and Ralph Gio being involved. And so the design brief for the vehicle said, consider the general footprint and attributes of a sport crossover utility vehicle an ideal vehicle footprint for middle-class Canadians. So yeah. are you all in on the, the notion of crossovers? Yeah, I think that the crossover flexibility allowed us to turn around and say, especially on a powertrain and the structural side, um, for suppliers to turn around and show what they could do on a sedan or a coupe or a crossover. Uh, and um, it, we also picked it because it's the fastest growing segment uh, in Canada. And, uh, we used a couple of benchmarks uh, that were very important to us. Uh, Toyota, Toyota Motor Manufacturing Canada and, and then Toyota Inc. have always been a very supportive partner for us to demonstrate technology. We think the number one car in this segment, uh, uh, for lots of reasons, is the, uh, the Lexus LX. You know, it's the, it's that price point. It's that configuration. It's a perfect car from a... Uh, initial quality point of view and the product, the, the plant is the number one rated plant in the world. And it's already 75% Canadian. So we said, look, let's pick the fastest growing segment. Let's pick the benchmark that is already invested in Canada. And um, let's take a look. If we can't do something that catches the eye like that program, then we're going to waste everybody's time. So, you know, part of the insight there. So Flavio, let's hear a little bit about the car. I mean, I'm dying yeah. to know, you know, yeah. uh, what size is the battery? What kind yeah. of performance do you have? Driving range, all that kind of thing. And then we can get yeah. into some of the specific technology. Sure. It's a 2,000-mile range and 5,000 horsepower, and it'll burn all fire. I know the look on your face. So, <laughs> so it's, a, it's, a, it's a dual motor. It's a Dana TM4 Motors. 
dual motor setup, uh, 550 horsepower, 82 and a half kilowatt battery from a company called Volta Explorer. Uh, it's a lithium ion battery uh, that has uh, is a graphene enhanced, uh, both canode, uh, cathode and anode. Um, we uh, think the range of this vehicle is around 500 kilometers. I say we only think because uh, the day before we sent it to CES, we were working until 2.30 in the morning. And now we've got it back here in, in uh, Ontario Tech University where they have uh, the world's, we think, most unique fully climactic climatic wind tunnel and rolling road. So we're doing a whole bunch of testing now in time for the Toronto Auto Show in February. Uh, it's a four-seat configuration. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of other technologies that we featured in there. But we, we the, the vehicle, you know, a lot of people remarked to me, look, it looks a little big for that segment. I said, no, actually, because we designed it uh, straight from electric. Of course, there's you'll, you'll see less of an overhang on the on the front end and the and the rear end. And I said, electric electric designed as electric allows for uh, such a different uh, approach to the greenhouse. A lot more room there. Of course, we set it up with those big suicide doors so that you could see the interior. So it, it has a different look of it uh, when uh, when you see it in pictures. But you know, I think some of you seen it in person. It's um, it's in that same segment, and and what we thought was we gave those uh, technical specs because we said let's hit mid range of uh, the offerings in that space, everything from Tesla Model Three and X uh, down to um, Hyundai Ionic, and um, you know the the main premise of this uh, project was those suppliers getting them business with the 14 OEMs that came out to see us. And so uh, we wanted to first show uh, uh, competence and then show creativity. And I think we found a balance of both. So uh, let's dive into some of the technologies. I mean, sure. to me, one of the coolest technologies on this vehicle, in fact, I thought it was the most significant automotive technology from CES, from Elite Power, which has yeah. figured out a way of getting rid of the onboard charger. So you take this big, lumpy, heavy, expensive component in electric cars and just get rid of it. Yeah, and I think that there's a, I mean, for lots of obvious reasons that there's a real advantage there, but also, you know, we've we've been discussing for 20 years and we'll probably discuss for the next 20 years about how do you standardize that charging component to bring that cost down and to make uh, that type of vehicle uh, more uh, palatable for uh, for uh, human beings who are going to choose them over internal combustion, uh, take the weight out of the car, uh, allow a different configuration for uh, storage. But also one of the things that we did here is when we ultimately landed on eLeap um, in the Canadian space, in urban centers, 40% of uh, uh, residents live in multifamily uh, uh, type housing, townhouses, apartment buildings, or condominiums. And the Canadian government has set a target of 100% electrification from by 2035, and we said it's impossible. And part of the impossibility is how people live, but also, look, do we have a technology solution for not uh, being able to cost-effectively retrofit wall chargers uh, that plug into cars? and not having enough space to park every car for everybody who lives in those apartment buildings. And I thought that eLeap was a, uh, was a very uh, forward-looking solution. Yeah. Another technology I liked a lot is there's a glass roof. It's transparent, yeah. Yeah. but it's also a photovoltaic panel to 
to be able to help charge the battery. Yeah, and I don't think that we're inventing anything there. Of course, uh, kudos to Toyota for doing that uh, with Prius for the longest time. But I think it's what we said was let's take an, a let's take a a uh, a more thoughtful approach because we're not uh, we're not Toyota building the next Toyota or Aston Martin building the next Aston Martin. Let's let's think about range in a holistic point of view. And in that, it's a uh, uh, what are we going to do with the battery uh, uh, with a with a creative but not exotic uh look for range extension and then how can we use that that uh, real estate on the roof and so a company called cap solar there uh we think and we're going to test it uh, this week we think between that and the graphene enhanced lithium-ion battery that we're going to see some material gains in um in um range based uh, 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 vis-a-vis and what they would have been if we didn't do that you know what, what's material look materiality is different for a lot of people but uh, five to nine percent range uh, extension uh, from uh, base I think is really important especially in Canadian conditions where climate will move 50 60 degrees from uh, you know midsummer to midwinter so John Volker jump in I know. Um, I guess my, my question is not so much about the vehicle. I'm curious about battery minerals because yeah. in our country, one of the things that uh, is now going to be required for any federal incentives is battery minerals derived from a subset of countries. Canada is a fairly friendly country as these things go. I think it's on the okayed list. But I'm curious as to whether the battery cells that you're using are actually 100% Canadian mined and processed minerals, or if there is a path toward that point. So there's a path to that point, but that path is 2023 through our partnership with Sayona Mining. So Sayona is a uh, Quebec-based mining concern. It's actually, it's Australian, and they have assets in Quebec, which will be delivering uh, lithium at the end of this quarter. Uh, It's the only... Uh, mine in Canada that will deliver uh, lithium hydroxide uh, at any volume for any uh, uh, automotive use before we think the end of 2025, 2026. We think it's an important part of that story. And it's in Quebec, uh, where uh, 99% of the um, electricity source is uh, renewable, hydropower. And so we think there's a good story uh, in terms of the energy required to uh, process uh, the rocks into cells and then make the cells and then add the graphene from a graphite concern in Quebec before those cells enter Ontario and get assembled uh, into cars. What you're identifying, John, is one of the things that is the the most uh, one of those concerns that keeps me up at night advocating for the industry here. We've got governments that use both the carrot and the stick to say we need to develop uh, a a serious uh, continental advantage in EVs, but with targets that push uh, battery purchases uh, to China over the next five or six years at the very least. Um, And, you know, I just came back from Three Amigos uh, conference in Mexico City last week, and one of the most important things that all three countries were talking about, and very importantly, the Americans were leading, is uh, where is our critical minerals, uh, joint critical mineral strategy? And let's look at it from a security point of view uh, rather than uh, like energy security point of view, uh, rather than just an opportunity point of view, because um, the Chinese have an incredible head start on us. 
Uh, they don't have the same approach to extraction and refinement. And uh, the cars that those batteries go into are rolling oxymorons, at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So Meaning Fabio, that uh, they're, they're pretty dirty in the way that they mine it and manufacture yeah, it. That's right. And if, if, we're, if what we're going to do as a continent, and especially um, U.S.-China US competition, but, you know, Canada is fully invested, obviously, with the North American solution. It's a, look, w- w- the, 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 the federal government is using the U.S. Treasury to pump hundreds of mil- billions of dollars into developing uh, uh, electrified supply chains and product uh, and the infrastructure that supports it. But we're going to, at least in the foreseeable future, for the next five, six years, we're going to pump electricity into storage devices made in China uh, while, on one hand, enriching the companies that made those batteries in vertically integrated facilities that don't care about the environment so that we could lead on climate. I mean, it's a, you know. It's a no-brainer, really. Yeah, let's, (laughs) you know, we need to also be realistic in this space that um, there's no greenwashing this. If you're going to go in whole hog, uh, then you've got to be much more thoughtful and, um, and uh, you're not going to, we're not going to create that, sub, that mineral, critical mineral supply chain uh, in North America if we force it over the next three or four years. So, so let me get back to your vehicle. Sure. Is, is the plan for it to be a technology showcase yeah. for the individual companies or was there any thought ever given to manufacturing this as a, as a product? Okay, so the scope of it is to be a is to be is, first of all, is, uh, we think it's the greatest industrial collaboration in Canadian automotive history. All these companies that that compete uh, for attention and market share have trusted us to do this. I think we're we're singularly positioned to be able to do this simply because we're not in competition with anybody. We're their advocates, and we were able to partition. You know, if I, my lawyer John Paulovich was sitting here, he'd say, "How much work did we go into partitioning IP and foregoing IP, and then how we demonstrate?" Uh, you know, if I take one subset of our suppliers that want to go and demonstrate to Toyota that they're not also giving a free sneak peek to somebody else's IP. So there's a lot of thought in that. And that's the, that's the reason that we built this car. Um, but every question I've had since I've shown the car is, well, can we buy one or are you going to make them? And uh, I think one of the things that we wanted to have as the legacy of this project is there's lots of reasons why Canada hasn't had a new sustainable automotive uh, uh, startup in over a hundred years. And a lot of it is access to capital and then the, the, the risk profile on it. But what we proved with this prototype is it's not for lack of technical know-how or for the personnel to do it or for, you know, frankly, the balls to do it. And so um, a lot of these startups are coming out of Silicon Valley. Most of that is about access to capital. And that's something that, you know, we can't address, but uh, if we take the North American map of IT and the North American map of automotive manufacturing and um, uh, critical minerals required for battery manufacturing, the only place where a global top 10 in cluster in each one of those uh, uh, overlaps is in Ontario and Quebec. I want the arrow to cause for Canadian production of Canadian brands. It may be that somebody, maybe John McElroy says, 
I've got a billion dollars of risk capital I'm, I'm, I'm ready to throw into uh, manufacturing the arrow. But it's more likely someone who's going to say, look, a big subset of that rolling, uh, that, that rolling stock uh, or your notebook, all of the things that you've done, all the different suppliers, I want to give it a shot. You've now proven that we can source it from here. And we've got a federal and provincial government that have spent uh, – Three, four billion dollars in the last year and a half chasing 17 billion dollars of OEM investment here. My prediction is within the next 10 years, uh, Gary, um, Canadians at least will be able to buy a Canadian car and it might be the arrow from somebody, but it'll certainly be someone, uh, be a car from somebody who said, shoot, those guys just showed us that it actually can be done. Yeah, that's so, fascinating. You know, I, has anybody approached you? I mean, you, you, you show it and people ask, you know, can I buy one? But has anyone come and said, hey, you know, I wanted to start uh, this business and you've already got the car. Uh, yeah. I mean, this has been three years of conversations like that. And and um, several have been very serious and most of them been early stage and attracted to the, you know, the SPAC market was going crazy in autos uh, two years ago. And and we said to, to them uh, two things. Number one is... Um, we have committed to our partners that we would make this car. I don't, I can't get sidetracked on the trade association is now a car company. We're going to make the car first. And then uh, when we make the car, if your value proposition is to build the team Canada car in Canada, then I'm certainly your partner in helping you uh, bring that to fruition. You know, we were approached and we, 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 you know, we had some pretty high level meetings with a, with a government of a European country of some repute uh, who thought we would like to do this. We have lithium assets. We think this is a, a, a really good story for us. You know, we can make this as a European car. It's a Canadian company that manufactures in Europe. And, and ultimately, while that might be exciting from a personal point of view, it doesn't, it doesn't move the needle for what we need this to do, which is shine a light on how Canada is going to be one of the leaders in this EV revolution, uh, at least, uh, at least in the Western world. So, so Flavio, two questions about the vehicle. Okay. Um, have you done crash testing such that if somebody wanted to build this vehicle, they would be along that road. And is the model that you have right now, could you get in the car and drive it? Uh, let me do that in reverse. It's drivable. Um, it will do, uh, although I haven't done it yet because it's freezing rain out here. Uh, we, we've uh, set the governor at 100 miles per hour, and it'll do it. So we've engineered it to be a, a working prototype. Um, it's um, it's crashable, except that uh, we probably assembled $20 million of Canadian technology in it. So I don't want to crash the first one because it's a – well, You, it's you a, can do that virtually, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so right. So, so we're going to work with um, with Ontario Tech University and with uh, 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 other universities here, including in Windsor, who had been our, our, uh, our VR partner, in doing all of that uh, virtually. And we have, a, we have a schedule to do that virtually through the course of the first half of this year as we take this out on Tech Demo. And it's a good question, Gary, because we tried something new on this. We took a, a Canadian a company out of Toronto called uh, Zaba, uh, that uh, in, in essence, in, in layperson's terms, AI-driven uh, uh, 3D printing. And um, we 3D printed this chassis, uh, a whole bunch of polycarbonates in there. And in that 3D printing, the way that worked was um, 
you know, and, and I watched it. I watched it happening in real time as it would print, it would trace the temperature and the structural integrity of the, of what would have been joints rather than, um, um, uh, the chassis is actually three pieces. It's the left and the right and the, and the, and the uh, cradle at the top, as opposed to what we thought might've been 30 or 40 pieces. And, uh, adjust the machine in real time for the structural integrity of A pillar, B pillar piece, uh, wow. A, B and C pillar, and also front and rear crash. And um, we think that uh, this car, uh, we pl- we engineered for this car to be able to pass crash safety, and uh, we're going to test that virtually. If that's true, what we've done is doing two things in partnership with Zaba. I think we've shown the industry that you can do a working prototype in a lot shorter time and a lot lower cost than uh, we normally do these things. And then number two, I think we opened up a window for uh, uh, micro production or short series production on a different business model uh, than, uh, than I think all of us uh, expect. At the very least, we've really pushed the envelope using uh, Canadian technology on uh, uh, in, in vehicle assembly and not just in the product, uh, in, in the product components themselves. That, that's quite a story. How about yeah. um, magnesium, of yeah, which so, Canada is blessed with resources there? Yeah. Yeah. So we thought, you know, magnesium isn't a new story, but it, it, it but it's a, uh, there's a great company, uh, Meridian Technologies, out of London, Ontario, which is about halfway between um, Detroit and Toronto. And we talked to them about, we need magnesium for the lightweighting story, but I want to tell a different story uh, with magnesium than uh, wheels and engine cradles. I want to see if we can't turn around and do something structural with it. And so when you look at the car, you'll see the B pillars are uh, in magnesium. And um, we are, uh, we're going to hopefully prove when we do our, our, our virtual testing that, uh, that it is a, uh, from a, from a, a performance point of view, a reliable metal and configuration for crash testing. And then the question will always come down to, to you know, is it a cost effective depending on the application you did there? All right. So, so you have, you have suicide doors, but you do have a B pillar. Yeah. we Listen, on the original, on the original virtual model that we did. Uh, so on the Avro Aero uh, uh, jet fighter, the way that the, the, the cockpit opened was like this. And we thought it looked so cool. We went and designed doors that would come out and then slide open and no B pillar. And I said, this sound, this looks amazing. I mean, this looks, this is like, this is like Mercedes uh, S class coupe with the windowless coupe. But I go, but it's not plausible for this to, to, for that door configuration to actually absorb a side impact. So when we went with the final design, we went with a, with a B pillar and we went with suicide doors rather than out and sliding. And so, uh, so we lost a little bit of that that fun Avro Aero piece. But I did want to like credibility uh, for the technology we're demonstrating. Demonstrating was was more important than uh, than the sizzle. Like I'll give you, I'll give you a quick little anecdote. Uh, I, I I pull the sheet. And somebody whispers to me, like, there's, you know, see us, you know, whatever that room is there, there's 100, 200 people around. Somebody says, Carlos Tavares is here. He needs to talk to you. I'm like, I'm in the middle of something. (laughs) And so I hand the mic to Colin, who could talk for hours on the technology in there. And I run over to, to, uh, to Carlos, and he says, why did you do this? Now, literally, actually, if you look at the video, this is a whole bunch of posted when we're doing a reel. I'm in the back talking to him and I'm going like this. I say, 
Um, well, we want to aggregate as much technology on here so that we could show a company like yours what's possible in these in these component classes, and then uh, give them a better shot at winning business from you. Because well, then what? Don't they already do business with us? It's probably around twenty. Because well, tell me about the other thirty-eight. And I said, well, that's the point. And so you know, we're going to demonstrate to Stellantis. We'll do it in Auburn Hills. We'll shoot over to Paris. We'll go over to Turin. What whatever matters there. But in that, as Carlos is looking at it, you know, he had a they scrummed him. They go, are you going to build this? And they go, well, I'm going to build this. It's not my car. Well, are you interested in it? And he says, well, look, this is a bit of a novelty, but uh, we're really interested in seeing what some of the technology solutions here. Now, he was standing right beside the door. If I had no B-pillar there, I would have been embarrassed. <laughs> right? <laughs> and he was looking at it, and he was willing to, to, you know, he didn't say no comment. I'm, I'm not, if he was commenting on it, and I thought credibility was the most important thing. And we had 13 other OEMs that came through. Uh, the booth uh, over the course of those four days, uh, many of which had uh, preset meetings with some suppliers that then hung around and said to me, look, I'd like to talk to your LIDAR guy. I want to talk to your cybersecurity guy. I want to talk uh, to your magnesium guy. And they were there. And very few of the things in there were for novelty. One of them, though, was there's a maple floor. I said, we, we've got to do some Canadiana here. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if you guys had cars with maple maple floors, but I don't know that uh, anybody's had a hardwood floor in a car in uh, 90 years or so. But it was a nice little touch. And I said, look, if you if if you want to see me schlepping pure Canadian stuff, um, it's that's a Canadian maple on the floor. Otherwise, you can buy everything else in there. So, so what was the investment made in sure. this project? So we think the, 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 the total envelope when we're done, the final tests and the final demos is $20 million Canadian. Uh, just over 60%, no, just about 60% of that was the companies. Um, uh, one-off components. I mean, I think you all know what those cost, you know. Uh, one-off components, one-off tooling, um, uh, engineering, uh, mechanical support. Uh, some of it, the uh, R&D spend specifically for that uh, platform. And then $5 million Canadian from the federal government, uh, $1.8 million from Ontario. And Ontario, came, I have to say this, Ontario came in first when we showed them drawings and everybody else said, you're crazy. Uh, Ontario said, well, give me a little bit more of the drawings and we'll talk to you. And then Quebec came in with $1.4 million for companies that uh, that were going went directly to, to Quebec companies who were participating on this. And Everybody knows Ontario, and I think Ontario and Michigan have a have a, a symbiotic relationship. But Quebec has got a great history. The motor came from Quebec, the battery, uh, the lidar, uh, the lithium, and the wheels came from uh, from uh, from manufacturers and systems suppliers in uh, Quebec City and Montreal area. And we think that the electrification of the transportation sector of, of this automotive sector is going to it's going to be a rebirth for uh, Quebec in the car business that made General Motors cars and Renault cars and, and a whole bunch of other cars before they all receded into Ontario, uh, you know, ultimately uh, as recent as 20 years ago. Hmm. So, Flavio, I, I was trying to add that up in my mind as we went through the numbers. So you did this car for under $30 million. Yeah, we did for $20 million Canadian, and I think— uh, Oh, oh to- to- 20 total. Yeah, 20 total. I That's think, a uh, bargain, man. Yeah, it's a bargain. And then if you do the exchange rate, I think that's like $7 in a sandwich uh, U.S. So uh, it's probably about uh, four to 15 million U.S., you know. Um, uh, For a car it, it that well-developed, a drivable yeah. one, uh, yeah. that's pretty impressive. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, it was, it was, a lot, it was 
uh, we were trying to do the final count on how many between our small team of 14 here, a small build team at Ontario Tech University of another 15, and then the Skunk Works at each of the 58 suppliers, probably three, 400 people needed to get their part done for that one day, you know, January 5th, 2023, uh, and they did. And so uh, I wish I could list them all. I mean, you don't have enough time, but we will at some point tell everybody and show everybody that uh, the only way to do something so extraordinary for so little is to have so many people completely invested. And there's there's hundreds of people saying, oh, I, this is my baby. And, you know, we said it around here at lunch just yesterday, like, this baby's got a lot. This baby's going to have custody issues. There are a lot of people who are uh, who want to co-parent it. But to be honest, that that makes me feel so good uh, too because I think uh, because we're not an auto automaker and and Gary because we didn't say we were going to go out and sell it, um, uh, Canadians at least can turn around and kind of embrace it and say, well, this is the ultimate expression of what we can do together. Uh, there'll be somebody else. Uh, hopefully, there'll be several others that do them. But, but uh, we got the goodwill of of uh, being able to do it without saying to people, "Hey, by the way, this is for profit, and we're better than you." And and uh, and uh, facing, you know, lining up for uh, criticism uh, that uh, that a consumer would uh, would put on it. The criticism we want is. Is uh, I want to know what the, the the purchasing team at Ferrari thinks about uh, the structure here in the battery, and uh, and uh, what the interior team at uh, at Nissan thinks. So, so who owns Project Arrow? Well, um, the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association owns it, and so I guess that makes uh, my name go on the registration if it was a real car. Uh, but, you know, the APMA is owned by its members, and that's uh, over 200 automotive parts suppliers here. So if anything happened with this car that uh, somebody wanted to take it over the line, uh, the beauty of it and why everybody, I think, part of the reason why everybody's got goodwill uh, for us on this is that everybody benefits. So, Flavio, uh, obviously anybody watching this right now can do an Internet search and find out even more details. I know you've got a website on it. But as you know, the show is watched by a lot of insiders in the automotive industry. If they yeah. want to take this farther, what do they do? They got to call me. Okay. They got to call me and they got to, they, and I say this humbly, they've got to think about a Canadian solution here. Uh, and that doesn't make it the cheapest and most efficient one. And I respect that. Uh, but I think that uh, what we did here is that uh, we borrowed uh, from Canadian mythology. We partnered with Canadian governments and uh, we insisted on Canadian suppliers here. And obviously, if you're going to sell a car at volume uh, profitably, you're going to have an international mix of supply there. But there is no mix on where you would assemble this. This, if your if your if your zip code is American and not uh, a Canadian postal code. Uh, you know, we're perfectly fine with just having one demonstration car. <laughs> but ideally, there would be 50000 a year made for approximately, or selling for approximately $60,000 Canadian that would be in a plant in Quebec or, or Ontario, Ontario or yeah. Yeah. on the other side of uh, yeah. uh, and it's either Alberta, this. Manitoba, anywhere else. Yeah, although I don't know if you brought in from uh, from Alberta or Manitoba, you'd probably eat up your your profit margin in delivering it. But <laughs> but with components from there, uh, ideally, and uh, you know, we use that number to say that you know you could probably have a sustainable business based on that. And and the sixty thousand dollars was pegged against some really good product made here in Canada, like Ford makes the edge and. Uh, 
uh, Toyota Lexus uh, make uh, Rav4 and um, and RX, and uh, you know it's one of these things where everybody's pulling for it because it's Canadian until you got to pay for it. And when you pay for it, you have, you're going to turn around and say, I'm going to put $60,000 down and this thing better work. And it better work better than the Canadian built options. If I'm really that patriotic, I just buy a Ford out of Oakville. Uh, I know what uh, quality Ford brings and what that warranty looks like. And so it is a, I try to say to people like, it would be very, very nice to see this thing taken over the line, but getting to a prototype and to a sustainable business with a relevant proposition, you know, there's going to be a, we're gonna have, we have to bring in a lot smarter people than me on that one. Hey, Flavio, we are going to close down this section of uh, the, today's show. Been fantastic having you on. Uh, thanks for and uh, we'll, we'll really keep track of how Project Arrow goes, but thanks so much for coming here today. Appreciate it, John, and thanks, uh, Gary and John, for uh, for uh, delving in a little bit here. It's a passion. I hope that comes through here. Uh, I'm a car Didn't guy. Didn't notice at all. Just this yeah. that you were just sort of indifferent about the whole thing. <laughs> I, I'm passionately Canadian, but I'm a car guy to start, and uh, and I think w- I've got three. Uh, teens who did not get their license on the first day they turned 16. And to me, that's so strange. And so we've got to keep them interested. And I think if what we do here is, 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 is inspire a whole new generation of boys and girls to love cars, then, uh, then I've done my job. That's awesome. That's great. Okay. We're going to take a very quick uh, commercial break right now for our great sponsor, Bridgestone. Then we're going to be coming back and talking about all kinds of things going on in the industry pertaining to electric cars. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. How do Bridgestone tires stop shorter on wet roads? It's their HydroTrack technology. But you don't have to know how the science works. Just where the brake is. What really matters is their Bridgestone. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, we're back. And boy, a lot of stuff going on in the industry. And I know, Gary, that you've got some topics you want us to get into. Well, I think the first thing that we we absolutely need to talk about in, in this this could be a game changer in some ways. Okay. And, and, and I refer to 
the cost reductions that Tesla has made on a global basis. And, and so the thing that I wonder about is, is this merely a tactic for them to move some sheet metal in the short term? Or is this a strategy for the long term whereby Tesla is basically saying to the rest of the world auto in, you know, industry that's getting into this space, you want to compete? Okay, this is what you got to compete against. Yeah, John Volker, why don't you take that? What do you make of this uh, price war that, that Tesla has triggered? I think it's a very good thing for car buyers in general, especially those who are willing to consider an EV. Um, Tesla has made no secret of its ambitions to become a global scale manufacturer. And while they have plants in Europe, North America, and China, um, they're still at roughly a million, million something a year versus the Toyotas and Volkswagens who are at 10 million. So Tesla is not yet in the same category. And clearly the company would like to be. It clearly has a jump on other companies in terms of volume production of EVs. Um, and it has some technology that others do not have. Um, so this is, there was a lot of discussion at the end of last year about uh, possibly waning demand in China. And the fact uh, talked about by people like us, that Tesla's product line is now at their newest car came out in 2020, Model 3 dates back to 2016. So even though there are changes in the software and they do different things, it still looks the same. And after a while, people expect their cars to look different. Um, but I think this is Tesla in effect saying how you set this up, which is, okay, guys, you say you got all these EVs coming and you have the economies of scale, bring it. So, so, John, so you don't think this is short, this is, this is, this is a, a long-term play. I think it's a long-term play to keep them where they are and keep them on their growth trajectory. Um, you know, if they could raise prices and keep growing, they would. What auto company wouldn't? But um, I think this is them essentially saying, yeah, we're serious about this. We see a lot of competition on the horizon, but unless or until GM manages to start spitting out electric cars in volume, a lot of announcements, not so many cars yet, um, unless or until Volkswagen has a multiple product lineup of electric cars in North America, which it doesn't. Um, Nissan kind of walked away from its lead. Ford has some interesting stuff. They do have two passenger vehicles, but Tesla is in a dominant position at this moment, and they definitely want to hang on to that. John, do you think that uh, demand was really waning for Tesla in China? I mean, there was all kinds of lockdowns and everything that only got lifted mid-December. I, I I've been thinking all along it was more a factor of those lockdowns than it was waning demand. But what do you think? Well, if you look at some of the other electric car makers in China, they didn't see some of those. I, I completely grant you the China market and, in fact, the global market in the past three years has been, shall we say, lumpy. Um, but uh, the challenge for Tesla in China is that they have to continue growing pretty steadily because, as I understand it, there are some fairly onerous terms in their contracts with the city of Shanghai and other government entities 
that um, they need to deliver a whole lot of cars to live up to those contracts. And China is a huge, huge portion of Tesla's growth. So cutting prices, the Chinese consumers, even wealthy ones, are very price sensitive. And cutting prices is how you get more sales. Yeah, so, and the early feedback is sales have really popped this month because of those price cuts. Yeah, I, I tend not to look overly at individual months of Tesla sales, in part because they have a 10-year history of jacking their sales in the third month of a quarter with special incentives and, you know, deals that only last for three days and almost like regular car dealers, but of course, very different. And um, so if you look at quarterly sales and kind of the trajectory over a couple of years, to me, that's a better indicator than a single month, but we'll see month by month. So, so what impact do you think the Cybertruck will have, assuming we see the Cybertruck this year? Assuming we see the Cybertruck this year? Yes. Um, it was, <laughs> remember, going to be out in 2020 and 2021 and 2022. Now we're in 2023. It hopefully will be out this year. Um, that's one I find really hard to call. Clearly, there is a Tesla base that wants the Cybertruck. They've had hundreds of thousands of people apparently put down deposits. Deposits that were not as high, if I remember, as they were for the Model 3. But nonetheless, they sent Tesla some money. Um, How many of those convert? TBD. But I think the real question, and I don't know if I have any kind of wisdom on the answer, is will the Cybertruck go beyond being, in effect, something like, a Raptor or some special edition of a more conventional pickup truck that has a small dedicated audience for what it is? Or can they get your plumbers or the guy who just has been driving F-150s for 30 years as a commuter vehicle? Can they get those people when Ford already has the F-150 Lightning on the market, GM says it will start producing Silverado EVs, this year, I believe, first work trucks, consumer models later. And of course, Ram just introduced what it's doing at CES. Um, the cyber truck, I think the best adjective is dystopian. And I'm not entirely sure what the market is for an extremely aggressive uh, doorstop wedge shaped dystopian looking pickup truck. Time will tell. I'll just interject quickly that two different suppliers told me, now this was last year, that they had uh, purchase orders to start shipping parts for the Cybertruck this summer. So I don't know if that's early summer, late summer. I'm guessing it's late summer, but um, they were pretty convinced it's going to happen. Now, that was last year. Things changed quickly with uh, with Tesla. So, so, so John Volker, um, fr- from what you're saying about, you know, what the Cybertruck could possibly do so so basically you're saying okay you you've got two groups of people one group consists of people who buy a pickup truck to use it as a pickup truck then there's another group of people who buy a pickup truck to drive a pickup truck because for whatever reason whether it's the the size or the height or i don't know Um, so so the the work aspect you're dubious about, 
the non-vocational user is the audience you think might go for it? I think the non-vocational users are the obvious initial audience. Um, I have an actual, I just built a house. So I haven't actually asked any of my guys if they've seen a cyber truck or if they would want to drive one. They have complaints about modern day pickup trucks, which for many of them are just too big for their particular businesses. I'm sort of surprised how many of them drive vans now, but, um, Tesla doesn't have a ton of experience selling into selling trucks, let alone selling trucks into commercial fleets. So, you know, how many Raptors does Ford sell into commercial fleets? I don't know the answer, but I think <laughs> how, how many owners are there? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's at least initially a better comparison. Now, if Tesla starts talking about the one with steel wheels and maybe no cover over the bed and coming in without some of the bells and whistles, perhaps we'll see. But fleet purchases, in my understanding, tend to be something where you do have to have a salesperson that works with the fleet buyer. And how Tesla would negotiate that in a new market, I don't know. But before any of this becomes relevant, I just want to see actual production. I want to see cyber trucks coming off the line. Then we can have these discussions. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, they have that factory in Austin. That's uh, apparently going to be um, all set up and ready to start churning them out. Let us hope. Yeah. So go ahead, Gary. I know you have another, no, 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 more stuff. Well, okay. so um, an interesting and perhaps in the Ford Raptor realm of things, um, that you were mentioning, uh, John Volker. Um, so Corvette E-Ray was introduced. So it's, it's said to be for the 70th birthday of, of the Corvette brand. Um, so you have a 495 horsepower small block V8 and a 160 horsepower motor that powers the, the front axle. So basically you got a wampin powerful performing hybrid vehicle. And the thing that I was wondering about, and, and I want to ask both of you this, um, you know, we've heard a lot from GM about, you know, the electric future. They basically, you know, walked away from the Volt, which was a hybrid vehicle. They have no other hybrid vehicles, yet they come out with a, with a Corvette that's a hybrid vehicle. Why? Mr. McElroy? Well, you know, uh, here's my opinion is, uh, number one, we know that the first all-electric Corvette is is not going to be the sports car. It's going to be an SUV. It's going to be built in Lansing, Michigan. Uh, my guess is GM just didn't have the resources or the, the Corvette team did not have the resources to pull off a pure BEV Corvette at this point. I'm, I'm positive one is coming. But, you know... Uh, John, you mentioned, I mean, GM's barely sold any uh, Cadillac uh, Celestics, or uh, uh, not Celestics, uh, lyrics. lyrics last year. Um, they did better with the, the Hummer EV, but even so, it was not big volume, not even close. And, and to me, GM is kind of squandering its lead right now that it's got of clean sheet BEV platforms and plants in, you know, a battery plant that's already up and running, whereas uh, nobody else, with the exception of Tesla, has that in this country right now. 
But my guess is they just didn't have the resources to do an all-electric vet right now. A mm. um, handful of things. To what degree is Lordstown up and running and producing usable volumes of cells at appropriate yields? I haven't been able to get any clarity on that. If you have, we'll talk. But at this moment in media time, GM has gone quite quiet on that particular project and that joint venture. Um, and I've talked to a few people in the battery industry that have simply underscored the point that setting up a new battery factory, training the staff, but more than that, getting the machinery tuned and the yields right and the purity of the incoming ingredients done is really, 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 really hard. And GM has done this with LG, but LG made the cells for the, for the um, uh, bolt. The bolt. And this is a joint venture at much higher volumes, you know, hundreds of thousands of cars a year with great honking battery packs. So I think Jim is probably going through, you know, teenage battery plant hell right now. But to the, to the Corvette E-Ray, um, they have much higher volume plans than Corvettes. You know, an electric Corvette is not going to move the needle on, what's their slogan? No crashes, no congestion, no emissions. Oh, or zero, zero, zero. Zero, zero, zero. Yeah, that one. So um, an electric Corvette is not going to move the needle there. The thing about it is, remember, Porsche has had a racing version of the 911 with an electric motor between the front wheels for 10 years now. This is hardly a new concept. The Corvette has not pioneered anything here. And if they take that racing, I think they will find that it gives them that extra kick of performance. I talked to Patrick Long, who drove the, I'm going to get this wrong, 911 GT3 RS hybrid, or I forget the name. But right, I think you're you know, right. He's sort of like, I can go deeper into corners. I hit the button. I get pull out of the corners. I'm faster. I like this. And I think that will be the real pull. It didn't make sense to make it a plug-in for whatever incremental range you would get because electric range is really not what a Corvette is about. Yeah, we'll have an electric Corvette at some point in the future. This was pretty predictable because I remember looking at the, the chassis when they introduced the new Corvette. It's like, hmm, big, deep front trunk thing with a big, wide space between the wheels. No kidding. So... So, 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 John, you you mentioned something that I find this to be interesting. I haven't I haven't heard this before about the the difficulty of ramping up a battery plant, and and how how tough that is. And you know, th this leads me to wonder: um, a Do you think that this this goes to John McElroy's point about General Motors sort of squandering its its possible goodwill or lead in terms of clean sheet um, EVs. And, and secondly, I'm thinking about, you know, Ford, for example, is building, you know, Blue Oval City in Stanton, Tennessee. I mean, a ginormous facility that includes a battery plant. Do, do you see that um, this may delay the number of, of volume EVs that we'll be seeing from companies? Like it'll be delayed for all of them? by some period of time? It's entirely possible. I think Ford will have these same challenges. Let me put it this way. The first automotive cell plant in the U.S. was the one 
Tesla and Panasonic did together in what was called Gigafactory One. And that was announced in, I think, 2014 or something. If you look at Panasonic, it took them three or four years to get to profitability. And Panasonic has been making batteries five, all right. Five um, years really? to get to full line speed. And 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 yeah. I'm told that that's sort of par for the course. Five years to get to full line speed from a clean sheet uh, battery plant. And Panasonic is one of the world's most competent battery cell makers. You know, they've been making cells a lot longer than LG has, if I remember my early battery history. And so, you know, the fact that it took Panasonic that long, now granted, they weren't working with Japanese workers, they were working with American workers who are somewhat different. New country, new culture, brand new machinery, new state, etc. But just those factors replicate for anyone who sets up a new battery plant. It's really hard. And I think this is kind of a crux year for GM because I'm expecting to see volume, you know, tens of thousands of electric Chevrolets starting to come out by the end of the year. The Silverados, you know, the Hummer, low volume. They say it'll be higher volume than we thought. Great. Fine. Um, the Lyric's still a high-end car, but Chevrolet makes mass brand cars, and they have to be able to build them in the tens of thousands and then the hundreds of thousands to get anywhere near what they've announced. I mean, they're going to have five cell plants in the end. I know um, Spring Hill is now under construction as number two. There are more beyond that. Each of those is going to be really hard to set up. So it is possible GM was optimistic about its abilities to crank out yields or Maybe the yields are great, the cells are coming out, and they're just not telling us. But I'm not entirely convinced we wouldn't have kind of known that if it were the case. Right. Right. So, so, John McElroy, you guys reported on Daily today about a, a situation in, in the state of Virginia in the um, CATL battery company. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin, uh, Republican of Virginia, uh, slammed the door on a battery plant going into his state that was a joint venture between Ford Motor Company and CATL, the big Chinese uh, battery maker. He, uh, The governor claimed that this would be a front for the Chinese Communist Party and it would threaten the livelihood and privacy of Virginians. Meanwhile, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Democrat of Michigan, came out and said, hey, we'd love to have that plant in our state because it will represent a multi-billion dollar investment and it'll generate 2,500 jobs. And uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because there's no, no question whatsoever that Chinese automakers and battery companies are, are looking with their, they're drooling over getting into the American market. But, you know, they're afraid of running into this kind of political backlash that they ran into in Virginia and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, because I think some governors are going to want that kind of investment and job generation and others for political reasons. At least that's the way I read it, are going to say, no, we don't want any Chinese stuff whatsoever. Is there a parallel to the process over 30 to 40 years ago where Japanese automakers set up their first North American plants and some of the mixed receptions there? Totally, um, John. 100 percent. 
you know, we, we, we lived it here. You know, Mazda wanted to build and, and it ultimately ended up building a, a plant in the state of Michigan. Boy, there was huge resistance to that. Honda was the first to go into Ohio. And remember, they took baby steps. First, it was uh, only making motorcycles. And there wasn't too much of an uproar about that. When they announced that they were going to start building Accords there, ooh, there was big pushback. Uh, and now today, you know, like you said, 30, 40 years later, we don't think anything of it. There's something like a dozen foreign automakers who have built over 30 manufacturing facilities in the U.S. And I'm sure the states that have those facilities would not want to give them up and probably are very glad that they're located there. So I wonder if TikTok is legal on uh, government phones in the state of Virginia, but that's that's another thing entirely. But John Volker, th- this this raises a question that I that I have in terms of um, why do OEMs partner with other companies in terms of making batteries? Why don't they just make batteries? Um, because battery research, battery chemistry development, the fundamental chemistries and physics of it, um, are something that may take 10 years from your first promising lab results to actual cells coming off the lines. It's very expensive. Um, For every new cell formula, there are dozens, if not hundreds, that get tested, some may look promising, some don't. And in the end, they don't prove out. Toyota, remember, was gonna have lithium ion cells in its 2010 Prius, and they bet on the wrong chemistry. One of their board members actually said so, which was pretty shocking back in 2009. He said, essentially, we chose a lithium ion chemistry that had great performance characteristics, we could not manufacture it. And that, that we was them and Panasonic together, I believe. But Car companies, some of them will likely go that route. Tesla is going that route, for instance, and often the rest of the industry does five years later what Tesla does. But it is so far from their traditional core of expertise in designing and making electromechanical devices, which for 130 years have been essentially creating thousands of tiny explosions with increasing numbers of moving parts, to propel the vehicle, that energy storage is just not something that was ever a core of excellence. GM has a battery lab they started for the Volt, so they may be further along. I mean, Subaru and Mazda and those folks can't even afford to develop electric cars alone, let alone go into battery making. VW, I think, is making noises about that, but it's a little hard to keep up with the ever-mutating Volkswagen electric car plans. Um, But it's just, it's massively capital intensive. And until now, it hasn't been what they do. Mm -hmm. We could keep going. I, we're past the top of the hour. Um, Yeah, we are, but this has been uh, really good stuff. So, um, all right, let me ask John Volker, let me ask him one more. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, And and so this, this is something that I've been thinking about. Okay. So, so one of the things that is, um, said to be the possibility of benefit of people charging at home and, and, and Bloomberg NEF thinks that by um, 2040, more than 80% of EV charging will be done at home. And so one of the things is that people charge at off peak rates, therefore it's cheaper. 
But what I wonder, John Volker, is isn't the increase in the number of people who will be charging off-peak, won't that cause that to be the peak as well? And and therefore, there will be no advantage. Um, A lot of it comes down to some fairly sophisticated or nerdy, pick your adjective, um, issues of demand curves of how you manage neighborhood power. Um, I have spent a certain amount of time talking to people in the electric utility industry. If you talk to the really old, scarred, retired executives, they are not nearly as worried about electric cars as they were when all of a sudden, over about a 10-year period, all of America had access to cheap, monumentally inefficient window air conditioners because those were used at the absolute peak demand period for electric power of any kind, which is to say hot, smoggy summer afternoons. Electric cars will be charged often at home or in parking lots or what have you. And there will be strong, what they call tariffs, pricing plans, to encourage you to do that at the trough of the demand curve you might get a special incredibly cheap rate per kilowatt hour to charge your electric car between 11 at night and say six in the morning. And many utilities actually already have these. And it might be four times as much to charge that car on that hot smoggy Friday afternoon. So there will be a certain amount of market push. But the other thing is that not every electric car draws peak power at the same time. You know, If I plug in at seven and my neighbor plugs in at eight and someone else plugs in at 10 and so on, your curves add up to a broader sort of spread. And there's a lot of work going into things like neighborhood transformers that max the load at a certain level and just sort of slow down all the charging so you don't actually blow out your transformer. Neighborhood transformers turn out to be a weak link in electric car charging in general, but Remember, electric utilities replace neighborhood transformers all the time. It's what they do. Remember plasma TVs? Remember the time where every household went from one TV, at least I remember that, to three or four, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They spend a lot of time predicting what are the electric things that are going to plug in and when, and essentially scaling their system to that. California is a special case. We won't go there now. But... Um, overall, you can plan for these things, you can manage the loads, and still, overnight charging is by far the best thing for electric vehicles, because the difference between peak power demand at, let's say, 2 p.m. on a hot day, and the bottom of that demand curve is substantial. And the electric utilities love electric cars, or at least the forward-looking ones do, because they say, ah, This is one place where we can sell more kilowatt hours without being dinged for increasing energy usage for not a whole lot of increased infrastructure investment. This is a good thing if it's done at the right time. And state PUC, let's work on that. Yeah, the electric utilities that I've talked to love electric cars coming on because what they've told me is, Electric demand over the last decade has plateaued in the United States. To your point, you know, we're not running those uh, those window air conditioners. We have much more efficient refrigerators and televisions and laptops and all that. 
So they were worried about their growth and they, they can't wait for EVs to really catch on in a big way. Yeah. The challenge for electric utilities is they don't have to market. They've never had to market because if you move to a neighborhood, you got one choice of electric utility and either you get power from them or you don't get power, right? They have never had to try to talk to consumers about new types of electric appliances. I mean, they do it, but with the greatest respect to my colleagues in the electric utility industry, none of them are very good at it. And so trying to explain to a customer base about electric cars, about different types of charging, you know, I had someone say to me, well, the sales guy said I can charge from 10 to 80% in 30 minutes and I can do all my charging at home overnight. Both of those statements are true, but they are not true together, right? <laughs> because if you have fast charging in your garage, you'll black out your neighborhood, so you're not going to get it. Um, there is a lot of public education that needs to be done. I worry about the utility's ability to do it, but I also worry about car makers' ability to do it, frankly. Yeah. Um, that's probably the topic of a different show. Yeah. And speaking of that, we'll have to have you back to, to talk about that because this has been a great discussion, but we should probably wrap it up at this point. John, thanks Always so much for coming on. Really good John. having you back on the show right. again. Thanks. Great to see you guys. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be on AutoLine. That's great. And Gary, we'll do it again next week. We will indeed, John. Okay. And thanks, everybody, for having tuned in. Auto Line After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone Tires, solutions for your journey. If you like this program and would like to learn more about the automotive industry, check out our website at Autoline.tv or look for us on YouTube on the Autoline channel. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 